This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, On the Media, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, Race Forward, and Democracy Now! The Utah Data Center is a building that the NSA has been constructing for a number of years to store the data that they're collecting. From what we can tell, this thing is enormous. It is over a million square feet, 100,000 of which are going to be data center storage facilities. The Snowden documents that came out last summer showed that the NSA is sucking up millions of phone records of Americans who aren't suspected of any crime. They're also vacuuming up the internet communications of people all over the world. And this is added to a trove of data we've been collecting over the years. Other whistleblowers who have come forward, people like Bill Binney, Thomas Drake, and Mark Klein, all of whom have said that the NSA is surveilling far more information than we, the public, were led to believe. They've built it. They intend to use it. They're trying to use it. They're having a difficult time using it. The Wall Street Journal reported last fall that they were experiencing meltdowns. We know they need a lot of water. It's this big eyesore in the desert in this small community that tells us, look, we are here and we are collecting information on you, whether you want us to or not. Okay, I can move you now. That's pretty good. Greenpeace, a big part of what we're doing when we do our protests, our direct actions is to, is to bear witness bearing witness to the crimes that are going on or the things we need to change. The protest that we're, we're planning right now is to really draw attention to this exists. We are launching an airship over the NSA data center with a big banner. It's what's called a hot air airship. So it's a, it's kind of a hybrid between a hot air balloon and a blimp. So it's going to Salt Lake City. It's going to be flying above the NSA data center uh, just south of Salt Lake City. We felt like this was a way to showcase the palpable realities of surveillance gone awry, of government that's just completely out of touch. Standagainstspying.org, isn't that right? Yep. This action has weeks of planning beforehand. We have to come up with the design, we have to build the banner, and then we have to physically drive the airship out to Utah. There's so many unknowns here. Uh, first of all, is the weather going to cooperate? It's going to be very cold. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be very early in the morning. Uh, it's going to be physically difficult. Load up, head on out. We really only have one chance to get this right. Unfortunately, Greenpeace has experienced firsthand the targeting by governments to try to stop our protest activity. The most extreme example is what happened with the first Rainbow Warrior when it was tracked by the French government and bombed in New Zealand and cost the life of one of our photographers there. All right, so let's go ahead and pull this out. We're going to pull this out and then pull it off to that side. It shows the extent that protest groups are often targeted by governments. Warrantless surveillance has been used to infiltrate dissidents, protesters, for years. 
anti-war protesters. The people at antiwar.com found out that they've been under surveillance for many, many years. In other words, if you oppose the policies of the state, you could be a target. And who knows how they'll use that information. Now my honor to sign into law the USA Patriot Act of 2001. The Patriot Act was passed right after 9-11. America was shell-shocked. We passed it with almost no debate. And to this day, we're still coming to grips with how that fundamentally changed our democracy, how it gave the government brand new powers to engage in forms of surveillance that had never existed before. Now we're more than 10 years after the Patriot Act was signed into law. And today we have this enormous facility being created in Utah, shrouded in secrecy. It's become almost a symbol of everything that's wrong with what the NSA is doing. And it's off. It's government completely out of touch with what the American people want. We'll be ready to go here in just a couple minutes. Protesting by flying our airship over this facility is one small way we can help draw attention to this. If we don't fight for these rights, we can expect to lose them. And the politicians need to feel that this is a political liability. The president needs to hear this. Other world leaders need to hear this. We're never going to have another chance like this. Yeah, give it a yank. We have everyone from the very far left to the very far right saying that this doesn't make any sense. We actually need to stop dragnet surveillance of our communications. It's bad for business. It's bad for civil liberties. When we think about the National Security Agency, we now know that they've spent years watching us, watching everything we do online, watching all of the telephone calls we make. And this action says, we're watching you too. We've got our eyes trained on you. If we want to live in a democracy, we ought to be able to know what our government is doing and have some say in it. This is a way of putting the Constitution back in the hands of the people and saying, we're going to fight for this. Privacy watchdogs took the skies over Bluffdale today. Activists called attention to a secret place. 100-year-old plus technology hovered above the new secretive NSA data center. A blimp with a large sign saying, illegal spying below. During his filibuster, Rand Paul didn't merely condemn the expiring provisions of the Patriot Act or the notorious bulk collection of telephone metadata under Provision 215. He wanted to stop all surveillance, including the programs no one knows about. So we know about this one, but what other programs are out there? There's something called Executive Order 12333. There are some who believe that this is just the tip of the iceberg, the bulk collection, that there's an enormous amount of data being collected on people through this other program. Now, Senator Paul has been known to throw his lot in with, uh, let's just say, the conspiracy inclined. Several weeks ago, he vowed to look into whether the federal government was planning to invade Texas. And in 2011, he compared the right to health care to slavery. But in this case... He's right. 
Consider Executive Order 12333. 12333 is uh, not a law. It's not a statute. It was never passed by Congress. John Napier-Tai is a former State Department official turned whistleblower. Here he is during a TED Talk last year shedding some light on the mysterious executive order. Most members of Congress have no idea that how this is being used at all. The NSA is using this authority to collect the majority of intelligence, but it actually got no press at all for a year after the stone leaks. A huge amount of data is being collected under 12333. In fact, according to documents leaked by Edward Snowden, more than half of the metadata the NSA has collected comes not from the Patriot Act, but through 12333. So what is it? Here's what we know. 12333 was signed by President Reagan in 1981 to lay out rules for the intelligence community, including the surveillance of non-U.S. citizens on foreign soil. But that was before the Internet, which is to say before our communications were routinely bounced across the globe. Steve Vladek is co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog and a professor at the American University Washington College of Law. He says that the whole foreign domestic divide is continually, inevitably breached. The problem that has arisen is that although it's primarily aimed at surveillance of non-citizens outside the U.S., it seems increasingly clear that the government is collecting an awful lot of U.S. person communications as well, perhaps not intentionally, but certainly knowingly. Well, does that have partly to do with the fact that the information that we send out digitally it goes all over the world in packets. I could be sending something down the street, but it might make a stop in Bulgaria before it gets there. Indeed. I mean, I think there are two reasons why this is happening. One is the fact that data is, in effect, borderless. We don't control where the data is going. But second, I think, is about the technological capabilities of our surveillance agencies. It just isn't possible, based on what we know right now, for those agencies to segregate communications from a U.S. person from communications from a non-U.S. person, at least at the moment of collection. They can't know who's the sender and who's the receiver when they just intercept a packet. They won't know until they actually look at more information about that specific communication. Well, what kind of information are we talking about here? Phone metadata, you know, telephone numbers and durations of calls and so on? Or are we actually talking about content? We don't actually know the whole story here because so much of the government's activities under 12333 remain classified. But there seems to be no question that some of what they're collecting under 12333 are the contents of emails, telephone calls, web searches. We just don't know where the lines are or what the rules are for when certain content is and is not collected. And Congress doesn't know either. Senator Feinstein, who was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, has said publicly, we really don't pay nearly as much attention to what the government does under 12333 as Congress does to what the government's doing under statutes Congress has passed, if for no other reason than Congress, I think, have long assumed that most of the 12333-based surveillance is directed overseas. And so that's why I think there are all these concerns about these authorities blurring together and all this focus on 215 perhaps distracting us from the larger puzzle of which 215 is really a very, very small, almost infinitesimal piece. There are a couple of other programs that uh, achieved 
their 15 minutes of fame right after the Snowden leaks, one called PRISM and the other called Upstream. PRISM collected information from technology companies. Upstream collected communications literally upstream from the users as data moves through the infrastructure like cables and so on. Neither of those programs are in the Patriot Act. They both come from Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So regardless of what happens with the Patriot Act, these two programs are going to continue, right? At least for the time being. And and so here I think it's worth trying to situate these programs within the larger story. So 12333 is directed at non-citizens outside the U.S., 215 and the Patriot Act is directed at citizens within the U.S. The gap is for non-citizens outside the U.S. who communicate through U.S. servers, whose emails, you know, go through a Google server in California or a Microsoft server in Massachusetts. Taking my Bulgarian example again, it's not me sending information that might end up momentarily in Bulgaria and then get ensnared by 12333. It's somebody in Bulgaria whose material ends up in a server in California, say. So that's what the statute's directed at. The problem is, is how does the government know which email is from the Bulgarian and which email is from you? And so the statute's directed at the problem of non-citizens overseas whose communications are routed through the U.S. The whole idea is that the government can go to Google, to Microsoft, to all these other Internet service providers and basically ask them directly for that content. But once again, we run into the technological problem, which is how does, does the government set that information so that it's not also collecting your email. It just happens to bounce through the same server in the same packet as the email from the Bulgarian to his friend in, say, the Czech Republic. Won't they just dump my stuff when they get it because they're not authorized to have it? So the government is supposed to, as you put it, dump that stuff so long as it's not relevant. Um, And that's the whole purpose of these so-called minimization procedures. I don't know what those are. Well, no one does. Um, (laughs) So the minimization procedures are statutorily required rules fashioned by the government and administered by the FISA court that's basically supposed to govern not the collection of information, but what the government does once it's collected it. The problem is that one of the things we've learned since the Snowden disclosures came out is that the government has repeatedly violated the minimization rules that it has uh, promulgated that the FISA court has administered. And how do we know that? Because we've had these FISA court opinions um, that were previously classified that were some combination of leaked and declassified by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, um, including an especially telling October 2011 opinion by John Bates, who was then the presiding judge of the FISA court, where he basically excoriates the government um, for a series of, in his view, completely intentional and perhaps even flagrant violations. So, you know, the regime is supposed to work on the theory that, yes, the government's going to accidentally collect some of our emails too, but they're never going to do anything with them. And yet everything we've learned over the last couple of years suggests that we shouldn't trust that that's how it's actually working on the ground. So if the entire Patriot Act were to go up in a puff of smoke, would that diminish the kind of surveillance overreach that is currently underway, or would it simply happen through other means? 
I think the government would just find ways to cleverly shoehorn existing programs into new authorities. I think the real lesson for all of us has to be how do we bolster not just the substantive authorities the government has, but the ability of other institutions to check those authorities. As much as we might trust the government, as much as we might support this president or that president, at the end of the day, it's not going to be the executive branch that checks itself. And I think it's a very real possibility that come whatever happens you know, with the surveillance reform bill, people are going to think that that's the end of the story. Not only is it not the end of the story, it is barely the beginning of the story. Steve, thank you very much. Thank you. Steve Vladek is professor of law at the American University in Washington College of Law and co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog. And now Andy of Mayberry gives Opie a lesson on civil liberties. Opie, I can't listen to this. Now, I told you about eavesdropping. But Paul, this is different. Yes, it's worse. You overheard a conversation that was supposed to be private. Now, I can't be a party to that. But Paul, if you just listen to this... Opie, I can't listen. Paul, you're erasing the tape! That's what I mean to do. You bugged a conversation between a lawyer and his client. Now, that's violating one of the most sacred rights of privacy. But Paul... No buts. But if it helps the law... Opie, the law can't use this kind of help. Because whether a man is guilty or innocent, we have to find that out by due process of law. You know, the 9-11 attacks opened the floodgates for security, a trend which, by the way, had been going on for some time anyway, but, you know, it was like adding gasoline to a low-burning fire, and all of a sudden, boom, we all understood when 9-11 happened that we were witnessing a paradigm-shifting moment when it came to terrorism. And in the matter of a couple of hours, while you watched it in real time on television, you know, we were all awakening to, you know, seeing just how vulnerable we were to terrorism. It's a historical wild card moment, right? Another concept we use in the history show. The idea that, you know, you could be going along just fine on a specific course and then history throws some fork in the road thing at you or makes you make a hard left at Albuquerque and all of a sudden things are moving completely differently. I had a dream the other night about another 9-11 paradigm-shifting moment. And it was going to be one of those moments where we got the historical bill for the no-money-down, drive-it-off-the-lot-don't-pay-for-a-year deal that the security changes that were enacted in 9-11 were supposed to give us, right? The bill coming due for what we lost. Remember, in order to get more collective security in the wake of 9-11, for example, to name just one event, you give up things. Everyone understood and always has understood that this is a privacy for security question, right? The governments of the world 
now need to spy on their own citizens more because mixed in with their own citizens are the dangerous people, right? This is the trade-off you make. But it's an easy trade-off to make if you haven't paid anything on the bill yet. In my dream, all of a sudden, the bill came due. I want you to imagine something for a second. I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning we all wake up to the biggest news story that has ever happened. Now, not the most important event at all, not even close to the most important event, but something that is perfectly attuned and, and designed to absolutely destroy the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, if you could mix some O.J. Simpson with a little Monica Lewinsky, throw in an Iraq war because that's always good for boosting ratings, and then a major celebrity death, preferably due to something unnatural, and it wouldn't come close to the news story, and the news story with legs, by the way, as we said in the journalism business, something that would keep on giving for a long time in a 24-hour news-starved, tabloid-infected you know, journalism Imagine if tomorrow some shadowy hacker group, that's the way I'm going to phrase them, shadowy hacker group, because that's how they're always proclaimed. Some shadowy hacker group does a data dump of 400 gigabytes of information, personal information, stuff taken off of the computers of other people. And by the way, all of the not interesting stuff called out, and just the most juicy bits thrown in there in the data dump. Now, the people whose data would be released to the entire world and the news media and everything else isn't just anybody's data. In my dream, you know, and dreams don't take into account nuances all the time, but, but in my dream, it was the thousand most powerful people in the world. And I say that with air quotes around it thousand most powerful people. I don't even know who the thousand most powerful people are, but in my dream, it was like every senator, every U.S. senator, every U.S. congressperson, the president, and then a bunch of celebrities, bazillionaire political donors, um, you know, heads of state of foreign countries. I mean, you know, if, if, if you're one of those people that thinks that the world is controlled via these uh, uh, meetings of the Trilateral Commission or the, the getaways of the Bilderberg Group or any of those people. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm not casting, casting any aspersions on your, your theories. Mine are just as wild, probably, or wilder. Um, but if you're one of those people, then imagine in your version of my dream, it's all of those people who have all their Internet data given to the public all at once, a thousand of them, all at once, a giant data dump. First of all, I mean, the, the heads of the news media would just explode. And the funny thing is, is you could see some of the news media trying to, to not go there, right? If these are the most powerful people, it might be the head of your news organization, the head of your station. Oh, my gosh, the head of Fox News is, uh, you know, Internet surfing habits have been put out online and all those porn sites he goes to and, you know. One of them is called NakedDemocraticChicks.com. I mean, you're not going to win that, even with people who understand the sexual side of it. Um, in, in any case, in, in my mind, all of a sudden, what had happened here is that the very people who maybe can make a change in things when they decide it's important to them have awakened to the fact that they have a shared interest that they may not have 
completely understood the ramifications of before the little 9-11 moment for privacy happened to them. They would be the 9-11 of privacy version of those people that died in the 9-11 attacks. The actual victims that awoke us all to what's going on here. We're finally getting the bill for all this security. The day that data dump happens is the day we all begin to understand exactly how much all these no money down, drive it off the lot and don't pay for a year security benefits for our collective security are going to cost us in terms of personal security. And don't kid yourself. See, I get into arguments with people all the time over, over things that I think are, are silly. And I'm going to show you why in a second. One of them is about trust of the government. In, in the conversation I had with Sam Harris, there was some of that where Sam thought I was just being terribly cynical to think that these governments had anything but the best of intentions, at least ours. But when I think about an issue like this, I think it becomes, and look, the news over the last month has shown, I think, this conclusively. It's not even theoretical anymore, that even if you have total faith in your own government not to go and spy when they shouldn't be spying on people they shouldn't be spying on, etc., etc., for, for, for entirely you know good purposes, what do you think about some other foreign government? The news over the past month is jarring because it reminds us, once again, as 9-11 reminded us, we knew we were vulnerable to terrorism. It sometimes takes an enormous event, you know, to, to bash your skull in with the idea so it sticks. We know we're all vulnerable, for example, to some foreign government getting our stuff. It just really is theoretical right now. The day that happens, and the day it happens to people who maybe are the ones who really matter in terms of being able to push policy, is the day we, one, see the bill come due, as I just said, and two, get to have this heavyweight, knock-down, drag-out fight between you know two old-style schools of history, right? And we've talked about this in history shows, too, the idea of the great man theory of history. Very old idea, probably the oldest original historical idea that it's it's major players that determine where things go and how things happen and, you know, the way they turn out. Other theories, though, that have been very popular are ones, for example, we, call, we called it the trends and forces theory of history, right? That there are big historical dynamics, things like industrialization and globalization and big things. And human beings get caught up in these and we're just sort of, um, we, ha we have very little influence over them. Right. And, and a perfect example of a trend and force, you know, that's operating on all of us is the one concerning privacy that's been going on for at least the last 20 years. I mean, how many famous technologists have come out over the eras and said, listen, this is the death of privacy. There won't be any privacy. You know, that, that's a it's an old style concept in, in the world that's happening and making it sound like it's completely inevitable. There's nothing you can do about this. It's a trend, it's a force of history. We're caught up in its dynamic. But if a thousand of the most important, in air quotes, people in the world decided tomorrow, oh my God, what happened to us today and continues to probably pain them for months and months. I mean, there would be trials and criminal indictments and I mean, it would be the biggest news story ever. I mean, designed like the, the proper bait for ants. I mean, it just, you know, hooked to their DNA would be irresistible. The next day, those people, I would predict that day, those people are going to be screaming at the politicians who themselves, at least in my dream, were victims themselves. They'll understand this better than anyone. These people are going to see if the idea that privacy is dead in the future is something we actually have to live with or if it's something that 
shall we say, once again, to get back to our idea that this is finally a bill coming due for something we got on a no-money-down deal about a decade and a couple of years ago, they're going to see if maybe now that we're actually paying bills for this, this deal can be renegotiated somehow. see you there. You know, if you're like most Americans, you probably say to yourself all the time, systemic racism, is that really a thing? Well, you probably know that today's technology lets the government watch what we do and track where we go more than ever before, so much that privacy is almost a thing of the past. But did you know that the government watches some of us a lot more than others, depending on where we come from? That as recently as 2011, the NYPD was exposed for targeting their surveillance specifically at what they called ancestries of interest that they've been using our tax dollars to spy on these people's everyday lives just going to the barber shop and the bookstore and singling them out for constant invasion of privacy for no other reason than where their ancestors were born did you know that do you know what that's called that's called systemic racism and yes it's really a thing As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Well, we turn now to look at what our next guest calls the golden age of surveillance. The leading security and privacy researcher Bruce Schneier is out with a new book, Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. The book chronicles how governments and corporations have built an unprecedented surveillance state. While the leaks of Edward Snowden have shed light on the National Security Agency's surveillance practices, 
Less attention has been paid to other forms of everyday surveillance. License plate readers, facial recognition software, GPS tracking, cell phone metadata, and data mining. Just this week, The Intercept revealed CIA researchers have been working for nearly a decade to crack the security of Apple's iPhones and iPads. Documents from Edward Snowden show the researchers claim to have created a modified version of Apple's software development tool, Xcode, allowing them to sneak surveillance backdoors into apps and programs. Well, Bruce Schneier, author of Data and Goliath, joins us now from Minneapolis. Bruce, it's great to have you back with Democracy Now! Um, can you start off by talking about this latest revelation uh, having to do with Apple iPhones and iPads? It's not really new. We know that the NSA, now the CIA, have been working to find backdoors in the computers we use every day, in Windows and Macintosh. This isn't the first uh, backdoor we've seen in iOS and iPhones. This looks pretty sophisticated, but this is pretty much what we should expect from the United States and you know other countries and criminal organizations as well. There's a lot of people trying to get backdoors into the devices we use. What about this problem in, ter in terms especially of, of uh, commercial or corporate surveillance that uh, the public are uh, willingly giving up their data in exchange for some kind of reduced price or, or, or uh, more efficiency in their ability to communicate uh, this, will this apparent willingness on our part to give away uh, this trove of information about ourselves? I mean, we give it away all the time, right? Our cell phones know exactly where we are at all times, otherwise they can't work. And think of Facebook or email or paying with credit cards or anything we do that generates data we give to third parties. I mean, we do it willingly. I'm not sure we do it with full knowledge. You know, we don't pick up our phones and say, this is my tracking device, I'm going to carry it in my pocket. We just do that because that's how the systems work. So when people are asked do they value privacy, they say yes uniformly. And I think people really don't think fully about what they're giving up when they go onto Facebook or use Gmail or do any of these services where data is collected. You write that the powers that surveil us do more than simply store this information. Corporations use surveillance to manipulate not only the news articles and advertisements we each see, but also the prices we're offered. Explain. Well, this is what we see. Uh, companies are using surveillance for persuasion, for, for advertising. And it's sliced very finely personally. The ads you see aren't going to be the ads someone else sees, based on your interests, but also based on what the uh, companies believe is your income level, how good a customer you are. You're going to see different search results than somebody else. So depending on your political persuasion, you'll see different advertisements, you'll see different offers. So you might get a different credit card offer than someone else. And that might be based on your income, on proxies for your minority status. We see a lot of this very personalized advertising designed to influence you and you alone. And how do you respond to those, especially in government, who say that this surveillance is, uh, uh, is needed uh, to be able to combat uh, modern crimes, terrorism? For instance, uh, uh, all of lower Manhattan right now is basically their surveillance cameras that capture every single license plate coming into lower Manhattan uh, for the New York uh, Police Department. 
there are license plate scanners all over the country. It's surprising how much of that is captured, just not, not just in New York. But there are companies collecting license plates, looking for cars for repossession, sharing it with the government, with Homeland Security. You know, we hear a lot about this is necessary for security. All the evidence shows it's not. I mean, there isn't a huge crime wave of unsolved crimes because of, of no surveillance. And then there aren't a lot of crimes being solved by this surveillance. Crimes are solved by following the leads. That's how terrorism plots are foiled. Whenever we ask the government, ask the police or, or the NSA to show how this surveillance is necessary, they can never come up with good examples. Occasionally they come up with examples that don't pass scrutiny. But this really does seem to be we're collecting it because we can, not because we need to. Can you compare government surveillance with corporate surveillance? Now, they're very similar, and I look at it as a partnership, the public-private surveillance partnership. One is caused by fear, right? We fear criminals, we fear terrorists. That's government surveillance. The other, as you said, it's convenience. We like the iPhone. We like this free services we get. They both collect data, very intimate data, where we live, where we work, what we're interested in, what we're saying, who we're speaking to, who we're intimate with, and they share it back and forth. Uh, data that's illegal for the government to collect, they purchase from corporations. Corporations purchase data from the government. It goes into databases. In the United States, it's bought and sold, and profiles are generated, and those profiles are used in both cases to pigeonhole us, to make decisions about us. Maybe whether we can get a mortgage, maybe whether we can board an airplane, maybe what sort of credit card offer we see. They're all used to judge us, and in all cases, we don't have the ability to look at the data, to correct the data, to, uh, to see why we're being judged and how we're being judged. We're being judged in secret. Well, last month at a New America Foundation event on cybersecurity, you questioned NSA Director Mike Rogers on the security of U.S. encryption programs. Let's go to that clip. My question is also about encryption. It's a perception and a reality question. We're now living in a world where everybody attacks everybody else's systems. We attack, uh, we attack systems. China attacks systems. And I'm having trouble with companies not wanting to use U.S. encryption because of the fear that NSA, FBI, different types of legal, uh, legal and surreptitious access is, is making us less likely to use those products. What can we do, what can the intelligence community do to convince people that U.S. products are secure, that you're not stealing every single key right, right. that you can? So, first of all, we don't. Number two, my point would be, that's the benefit to me of that legal framework approach. That, hey, look, we have specific measures of control that are put in place to forestall that ability. Because I think it's a very valid concern to say, hey, look, are we losing U.S. market segment here? Mm -hmm. You know, get back to this. I, I, I certainly acknowledge that it's a valid concern. I just think between a combination of technology legality and policy, we can get to a better place than we are now, realizing that we are not in a great place right now. What about that response of the NSA director, Mike Rogers? You know, I think he's being disingenuous that he's saying that some rule of law will convince people that the NSA isn't collecting data. But the rule of law says outside U.S. borders, it's a free-for-all. He can collect anything he wants. He's gone into the links between Google data centers and scarfed up everything. 
And the problem we have is that foreign companies, foreign buyers, aren't trusting U.S. products because of the backdoors he is putting in them. And my question was, how can we fix that? And his answer didn't answer that. Rule of law it, you know, doesn't give people from other countries assurance that we're not spying on their stuff. I wanted to ask you about one of the startling analogies you make in the, at the near the end of your book between what's happening uh, in this information age and the early industrial revolution. You made an analogy with climate change. You wrote, data is the pollution problem of the information age, and protecting privacy is the environmental challenge. Almost all computers produce personal information. It stays around festering. How we deal with it, how we contain it, and how we dispose of it is central to the health of our information economy. You go on to say, just as we look back today at the early decades of the industrial age and wonder how our ancestors could have ignored pollution in their rush to build an industrial world, our grandchildren will look back at us during these early day decades of the information age and judge us on how we address the challenge of data collection and misuse. Could you expand on that? Now, I think it's an important analogy. We're sitting here discussing the data we produce, the data our computers produce, what happens to it, who has access to it, how we recycle it, how we dispose of it. And these are really important problems. And they're not things we're going to solve overnight. And my fear in that, in that paragraph you read is that it's going to take a couple of generations to figure it out. That here we are producing this data, this big data land grab to, to access it all, to analyze it all, to use it all, is not being buffered by a sense of, of privacy, of per the personal nature of it. And I was, I guess, issuing a warning that maybe we could do better, that maybe we could think ahead as to the problems and really consider where data is, should be used, where it should be disposed, how personal it is, and how you can't just give it to third parties for free, that there's a fundamental rights issue here. So governments tell us if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Why should you be concerned about government surveillance, Bruce? Well, I mean, that, that's ridiculous on the face of it. Those same government officials who say that don't tell you all of their secrets, give you copies of all of their emails and correspondence. Privacy is not about something to hide. Privacy isn't something that you only have if you're a criminal. Privacy is about individual autonomy. It's about presenting yourself to the world. It's about being in charge of what you say about yourself and what you reveal about yourself. When we're, when we're private, we have control of our, of our person. When we're exposed, when we're surveilled, we're stripped of that control, we're stripped of that freedom. We don't feel secure. We don't feel like we have something to hide. We feel like we're under the microscope. We feel like prey. Privacy is a fundamental human need, and it's not about something to hide. I think it's a very wrong characterization, and we should fight it at every opportunity. But what can people do? Uh, what are the options for those who don't want to go with the tide? Now, this is very difficult. I and mean, I can tell you things like don't carry a cell phone and don't use email, don't be on Facebook. In a lot of ways, that's ridiculous advice. Those are the tools of of, of society, and we need them to be fully functioning members of society. At this point... The problems are political and social, and we need political change. What people should do now is observe surveillance and talk about surveillance. 
Right? This needs to be an issue in the next election. This needs to be an issue. People care about it. And the more we talk about it and make it an issue, the more we'll get change. Right? Admiral Rogers is not going to, to do anything unless he's required by law. And we need laws to protect us against government surveillance and against corporate surveillance. The L.A. Review of um, the L.A. Times review of your book says that you are as given access to the Edward Snowden documents. You have a special position to explain complicated, highly secret surveillance programs um, to the American public. What should we know? What should we be aware of? The, the documents and the stories are really explaining themselves that the NSA is collecting everything, everything they can, under a variety of laws that uh, have been bent beyond their intention. Data is being collected on non-Americans and Americans. It's being saved and stored and used. And we don't know a lot of the details. This is being done in highly secretive situations. Uh, there are secret courts passing secret rules that affect companies and us, and we don't get to know about them. I mean, what Snowden showed us is that this is all happening by the U.S. What we need to understand is that this is just not this is not just the U.S. China, Russia, other countries are doing the same things, and we need to look at this and decide what we want. The NSA is filling a vacuum by collecting everything. We need we need to step in and and put rules in place. And what most surprised you? You've been looking at this for decades, Bruce Schneier. What most surprised you in your research for Data and Goliath? You know, the most surprising thing about the NSA surveillance is how little is surprising about NSA surveillance. There was nothing in there that said the NSA is made of magic. There's nothing in there that if you watched a movie where the villain was the NSA, they didn't do. It's pretty much what you expected. But seeing it in stark reality is surprising. Seeing the details of NSA programs, of FBI collection programs, of these license plate capture programs, or what the data brokers know, the sheer detail, I think, is surprising. Because while we recognize this data is being collected, we often don't understand the analysis. And, and that, I think, surprises most people. That surprised me. Do you think political liberty and justice are threatened? I think they are. I think we're living in a world where we are being judged by our data. We're being judged in secret, where there are effectively secret courts. I mean, if you can't fly an airplane, you can't figure out why you can't or how to redress that. If you're denied for a mortgage or possibly a job, it could be because of this data. And you can't face your accuser and try to protect yourself. These are extraordinary times, and I think the threats are great, because algorithms are making decisions, not people, and that's very dangerous. So we sat and talked, then we walked on top of thought it was the truth, what is a secret? Drag it on and on, even favorite songs, but your division's wrong, what is your secret? You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, preserve anonymity, stand up for domain privacy. 
people prefer to remain anonymous online for a number of reasons, not all of them, so that they can troll and leave comments without reprisal. Groups and individuals who do the majority of their social justice organizing and fundraising don't link their personal information, their names, addresses, etc., to their websites to prevent targeting by opposition and law enforcement. Businesses like Time Warner and Walt Disney claiming that they need recourse for copyright infringement have lobbied the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, or ICANN, to end the proxy registration of domains that keeps people's information private. According to BuzzFeed, the entertainment industry sees proxy registration as a way to covertly steal content while privacy advocates see identity concealment as a way to enable free speech. The Online Abuse Prevention Initiative is particularly concerned about the way this potential rule change would affect groups like women indie gamers who sell their products online, freelance journalists and authors, small business owners who work out of their homes, activists who take donations, especially those who live under totalitarian surveillance states, and people who crowdfund medical procedures using their personal stories to solicit donations. The effect on marginalized groups and those without financial resources to protect themselves through the legal system or fight harassment after it's already begun could change the landscape of online organizing and commerce, as well as open up even more people to being doxxed. That's when people search the internet, gather your personal information, and then post it on the internet almost entirely for nefarious reasons. Now, the Electronic Frontier Foundation is, of course, leading the effort to fight this proposal. Their Preserve Anonymity, Stand Up for Domain Privacy petition to ICANN is up at their website, EFF.org, under the Take Action tab. By signing their petition, you'll be asking for ICANN to not only reject the change, but to go further to protect people's online privacy by creating less costly, easier ways to withhold personally identifying information from online domains. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If protecting online privacy matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the EFF campaign to preserve anonymity via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counting? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change If the choice though is between the U.S. government having access to our phones, along with everyone else, or no one having access to our phones, and the U.S. government, unfortunately, being cut out of that deal, too. You know, what do you think about that? Well, those who are pushing for more and continued emphasis on the collective security side of this digital scale, you know, have brought out the big guns on these questions. I have a couple of stories here. Um, how about big gun number one, ISIS? This is from Reuters over the last week. It's a piece by Lindsay Dunsmuir, and the headline is, FBI chief warns encryption emboldens would-be Islamic State attackers. From the beginning of the piece, Dateline, Washington, quote, 
barring law enforcement authorities' access to encrypted communications, would make it easier for Islamic State sympathizers to attack the United States, FBI Chief James Comey told Senate lawmakers on Wednesday. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the story continues, is pushing technology companies to let law enforcement authorities have access to encrypted communications to investigate illegal activities. Those companies have resisted, arguing that such access would weaken systems against criminals and computer hackers, end quote. The government has a very interesting public take on this. They keep saying they're not trying to force these companies to do this, that they think that the companies, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I've just read several stories on this, they think the companies aren't being creative enough, is the way they, and one guy said, you know, maybe if you force them to not do it the way they want to, they'll be forced to create a way that makes us happier. So it's a little like saying, yes, of course this is impossible now, everybody says, but that just means you're not trying hard enough. I have another piece, this one from The Intercept. Um, and, and it sort of breaks down a little of the story. This is a piece by Jenna McLaughlin from uh, July 8, 2015. The headline was, quote, FBI and DOJ target new enemy in crypto wars, Apple and Google, from the beginning of the piece, quote, the FBI and Department of Justice on Wednesday targeted a new set of threats to national security and law enforcement. Not ISIS or pedophiles, but Apple and Google. Those companies, the story says, and others that provide or will soon provide end-to-end -end encryption make it impossible to read intercepted digital messages. And without naming names, FBI Director James Comey and Deputy Attorney General Sally Quillian Yates said that they will, quote, work with, end quote, those companies to ensure access to their customers' communications. The story continues, quote, in a Senate Judiciary hearing Wednesday morning, Yates and Comey said that companies that, quote, do not retain access, end quote, to consumers' information can complicate authorized criminal and national security investigations. So after they get a bit of government speak on this, the reporter in the story continues and says, quote, what Yates really meant was that she wants companies to stop providing end-to-end -end encryption or find ways to circumvent it. Comey and Yates insisted that there must be some new technology that Silicon Valley could develop that would give them the access they want without risking stronger encryption. But privacy and cryptology experts have insisted for years that this would be impossible without compromising overall security and opening holes for criminals to exploit, end quote. And to give you an idea of how the Senate is responding in some cases, uh, remember this is before the thousand most influential people have had all their stuff leaked, so this is the pre-9-11 for privacy moment. Again, from the middle of the piece, quote, Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, wondered aloud whether companies that, quote, intentionally design a product in a way that prevents you from complying with a lawful court order, end quote, are the equivalent of a citizen who refuses to answer questions in court and is subsequently held in contempt, end quote. Again, he's not focusing on the trade-off here. He's acting as though the companies are doing this for no good reason, as opposed to something that if you catch him in a different context, Senator Cornyn probably supports. He probably supports greater cybersecurity, right? I doubt he's one of these people that would say, no, we don't want you to have more protection against credit card fraud or the Russian mafia or what have you, right? The two kids down the block, uh, you know, with no jobs who were hacking into people's identities. I mean, he's going to say, oh, absolutely. 
Unfortunately for him, the number one way that the experts suggest you could improve that situation is with the very encryption that he's saying these companies who are trying to maybe provide this to the marketplace are perhaps, you know, almost criminally liable for doing so. He wants the cybersecurity protection too, but not in a way that keeps the United States government from hacking into things. Well, what if it's an either-or situation? We're starting to see the cost of this collective security, and it's coming at the expense of our individual security, including Senator John Cornyn's. You know, one of the things a person like yours truly misses in our kind of a free society, and before you send me lots of notes about this, I know all the awful things that can happen when you have this sort of a mechanism in place, right? I understand it all. I still have a deep sort of sympathy for the idea of public referendums on certain crucial issues. You know, when you go to the public, the American people, in, in the case of my country, and say, listen, on this big issue, forget what the Senate votes, forget what the Congress votes, they're all compromised by, by these interests. We're going to go right to the people and ask for an up or down vote on this idea, these big picture things. Be very interesting to see what they answered about some of these trade-offs. Because, you know, we're a scared people. You can always bet on us to kind of go, oh, terrorists, it's very dangerous, you know. Uh, I think I'm going to vote for uh, extra safety just in case. You can count on that. But on an issue like this, where you've got that extra safety question on both sides, where it's a question of am I more afraid of terrorists somehow getting me or am I more afraid of some hacker getting into my phone, those are both personal safety issues. And all of a sudden, that dynamic where people, you know, like herd animals, tend to vote for safety over anything else, where the safety issues on both sides and people start weighing, what am I most likely to be affected by, terrorism or my phone getting hacked? Heck, I've already had these Nigerian princes contacting me nonstop. I've never seen a terrorist. Be interesting to see how they vote. And, and in lieu of a referendum, which we don't have in this country, Maybe we can draw some sorts of conclusions. I don't know. We'll have to see what the numbers look like. When a new iPhone goes on sale, promising encrypted, you know, messaging and all that stuff and see how the public reacts. And I guess the next question is, you know, if they react in a way that is very enthusiastic and Apple and Google both are saying that the reason they're making this stuff is because the public is demanding it, then what does that say? It's not a referendum, but it's certainly a bunch of people making a choice that seems to be completely opposite to what people like Senator John Cornyn believe. Can you draw some sort of a conclusion about how many people that might represent? I don't know. You know me, never a math major. But I'll just say this. If enough people start running around with these encrypted phones, um, either one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to find out terrible things have occurred because someone couldn't break into encrypted technology, or we're going to find out that a lot of people's digital devices were made a lot safer and the sky didn't fall. And if the sky doesn't fall, well, it makes it that much harder the next time there's one of those meetings on, you know, how we sell the president's new idea about security for the PR graduate from that Ivy League school to trot out. Of course, let's not ignore the third possibility that could happen as a result of encryption and more privacy technology, you know, in use. And the third possibility is that you get a little of both events, right? You get some bad people getting away with stuff, 
because law enforcement and the authorities couldn't easily get into their communications. And you have a lot of people benefiting from, you know, more privacy and security in their digital world. In which case I would suggest, and you know, it's funny because all these stories I have talk about, it's about finding the proper balance. I would suggest that that is the beginning of the process of actually finding the proper balance. Because up until now, it's been completely unbalanced with all of the authority and arguments on the side of more and more personal transparency to make things better collectively. In my opinion, if this ends up helping change the future, this era where we're told privacy is dead and there's nothing you could do about it and where we're all going to be forced to live in glass houses, I feel like there's a lot of sacrificing I'd personally be willing to make, and I bet a lot of you would, especially if you spend a weekend in a glass house, in order to see that that future reality never came to pass. And one of these days, we're going to start to see some of the people who have some power over these questions become victims of this themselves, and then we'll see if there's anything that can change in the trends and forces view of you know, privacy when a bunch of the great people in our modern world, in air quotes, decide it's a problem they want to solve. Hey Jay, uh, this is Uhuru calling from Sweden. Um, I'm fucking angry right now. I'm angry because we're we're in a crisis. Our trans sisters are being brutalized and lynched in the streets because of who they are. It's disgusting, and it starts with us. We need to teach our kids better. And specifically, I want to I want to aim this at my community, the black community, because trans women of color are targeted at disproportionate numbers, and it's disgusting. Transphobia is a humongous problem in our community. The murder of trans women of color are committed primarily by men of color. Teach our kids better. Black men, if you, if you feel like you want your freedom, from an oppressive system? Ask yourself, why are you creating an oppressive system for our trans sisters? If we black men can sit here and question the origins and myths about black men, why can't we question the origins and myths about trans women? Stop killing our sisters. It starts with us. Teach our children better. Black trans lives matter. I'm going to say their names. I hope I have time to do this, Jay. Amber Monroe, India Clark, London Chanel, Penny Proud, Taja Gabrielle De Jesus, Yasmin Payne, Ty Underwood, Lamia Beard, and today, Shadi Schuler. Black Trans Lives Matter. Stop killing our trans sisters. Hey Jay, this one's gonna stay anonymous, but that empty chair thing's got me fucked up. I'm thinking about 
shit. Uh, so I was getting frustrated about the the empty chair thing. Like, damn, it's it's messed up that society has all this pressure that keeps people from sharing their stories because sharing their stories can help be cathartic and share a message and educate people on stuff. And yeah, you know, it made me realize I have an empty chair story of my own, one that I don't think about that often, and is really. It doesn't come with a whole lot of deep scars, so it's it's okay for me to. I live with it just fine, I guess. And but even though those those scars are pretty shallow, um, I can only imagine how tough it is for people to live with scars that run much deeper. So when I was nine and ten, I had an older cousin who was well into his puberty years, and he would take advantage of me for his own sexual pleasure sometimes. And, and like I said, the things that he did, I can live with. But there's another aspect to the story because I had another younger cousin who he also took advantage of after I was too old. And then, so later in life, fast forward 15 years, had a reunion with his cousin and he had a lot to drink and he starts pouring his heart out to me about how bad he feels. And fast forward another 10 years after that, or nine years, that cousin takes his own life. So I guess the reason that I call and the reason I feel like this, important, this story is important is because this sickness or lack of ability to talk about sexual the sexual nature of our society and our unhealthy views of sexuality and our inability to talk about it for the plethora of reasons that we have that we do not talk about our sexual nature and even talk about it with young potential victims is part of what keeps us being to be mature enough to not create victims, to not create scars for both the victims and the perpetrators. And my cousin was yet too young to feel so guilty about what he perpetrated. Part of me doesn't blame him completely. He had problems growing up himself. And so those problems manifested themselves in the way that they did. And so, but regardless of all that, I think the takeaway here is that if we can talk maturely and find a way to have a dialogue with people of all ages about sexuality, we all can live in a much healthier society that views our sexuality uh, in a much more holistic and complementary way so that we don't have these dark places of our lives that shut people out and um, make them feel like they have to explore it on their own in a in a curiosity kind of way that isn't healthy and uh, with that uh, thanks Hi, Jay. This is Alex from Klamath Falls, Oregon. 
I have what could be an important and interesting opportunity for activism. The piece you played on consent, tea consent, by At Blue Seat Studios and the rock star dinosaur princess, I played on my own radio show some months ago. Afterward, I went to my kids' high school and shared it with the school counselor. There's a clean video version, and now this little wonderful moment in consent will be a part of the health curriculum. Wouldn't it be amazing if that happened all across the country and maybe even the planet? Thanks, Jay, for everything you do. You are changing the world, my friend. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Kulbusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. In either case, keep your messages short and sweet, and there's a much better chance that they'll be played. Now today, just a quick programming note. There are two full episodes left, uh, you know, next week, Tuesday and Friday of next week, before I go to Glacier National Park to go on my climate hike. So the show will be on a short hiatus during that week. And, you know, if you recall, a couple of months ago, I did a big fundraiser. I raised money for climate change organizations. And the deal was if I reach my goal, then I go to Glacier National Park and go on extremely long hikes for multiple days in a row. Uh, you know, it's a fundraising opportunity. It's an awareness raising opportunity. It's a way to learn about the fragile ecosystem of Glacier National Park and how it's going to be affected by climate change. So all of that is coming right up. Now, the news is that Glacier National Park at this moment is on fire. Uh, the article I read about this, uh, to learn about it just a day or two ago, uh, cited dry vegetation, minimal moisture, high temperatures, and low humidity as the reasons that the fire is uh, you know, so intense and, and growing. So my hike to raise awareness about climate change may be interrupted or canceled or in some way affected by a wildfire being fueled by lack of moisture and high temperatures. So we can all just let that sink in. Uh, but what I mostly wanted to talk about is the next episode coming out on Tuesday, in all likelihood. Uh, as I talked about in the previous episode, I want to do an episode on Black Lives Matter and Bernie Sanders and the election and progressives and infighting and all of those things. And, uh, and I did a commentary about how if you are sort of confused about what's going on or you're frustrated or you don't, you feel like you don't get it, my advice is to uh, talk less and listen more. And so I'm going to be doing this episode. And I also think the reverse of that advice is true. If you feel like it, if you are a person who is not confused about what's going on, um, you know, you may still be frustrated about it for sure. Uh, but if you're like, yeah, I, I totally get what's happening. It's certainly not your duty to inform those who don't get it, but if you'd like to, I would love to hear from you. Uh, so the plan is to put that episode together probably uh, this coming Tuesday, and I would love to have your comments be part of it. So as I said, you can either uh, record a message and email it to me or call in at 202-999-3991. That would be fantastic. And just keeping in mind, I'm, I'm trying to look forward because any conversation that happens around this topic over the next couple of episodes is going to be interrupted by the hiatus of the show, which is why I'm putting out a call for comments now so we can get them in uh, before the break.
So I can't wait to hear from you. I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot, but that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing